Workers win pay rises. How Labor won government. Coal fails during cold snap. And the good news is about energy transitions in Western Australia. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me on this lovely freezing cold winter's day in central Victoria in our home (laughs) is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. Van Badham, how are you, Van? The woman who holds the dog. Well, that's slurping, by the way, everybody. That's our very cute dog, Germanicus, who has his little snoot poised at the microphone. So it could get very slobbery from this point on, but if I let him go, I will probably hit the ground. Yes, it, it's uh, it's quite possible he will nose bash the microphone, so we will do our very best to avoid that. But uh, if you do hear some nose bashing, it's the dog, not us throwing things at the microphone. I swear. I swear. Of course, today is a very important day for some 2.7 million Australians. It's minimum wage day. It's minimum wage day. Ben, tell us what minimum wage day is. So minimum wage... <laughs> she said avoiding the dog's nose. The minimum wage day is the day in which... The Fair Work Commission hands down its ruling about minimum wages and award wages in Australia. So Australia is one of the first countries to have a centralised minimum wage. It goes back to Harvester. There's lots of stuff out there you can Google. Harvester, by the way, was a judgment. Yes. Where a judge decided that workers should be able, like male workers, because of the time, should be able to support a partner and a couple of children on their single wage and that the the wages in Australia should be set by that standard. Yeah, and basically... And to be fair, at the time, that was enormous progress. Huge progress. And it's changed and evolved over time. And now, of course, we have, we're, I think, the only country in the world that has what's called award wages. That is, minimum standards for different sectors of the economy based on the skills, requirements of the work that people need to do. It's, it is a highly integrated system, and it actually works relatively well. 2.7 million Australians rely on the minimum wage and the award wages that come from the minimum wage as a base. So today, the Fair Work Commission handed down its ruling. And this takes months, right? Like everybody puts in a submission. Australian unions put in a submission. State governments put in submissions. All the capitalist cartels put in submissions. (laughs) I think we call them lobbyists rather than cartels. Capitalist cartels. (laughs) But The economy riggers for the ruling class. And for the last 10 years or so, you've had the Morrison government putting in a, a, a submission, and in its final submission before it thankfully lost government on May the 21st, hallowed be thy date, uh, it actually had a whole section in its submission called the benefits of low-paid work, right? Yeah. Such think, which really tells you everything, doesn't it? It does. But, of course, when Elbow won, he said, no, no, we want to have a minimum wage increase that at least makes sure people don't go backwards. And guess what, man? The minimum wage increase will be for this year. Guess, guess. Oh, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, uh, uh, no, you're going to have to tell me. I actually do know because I was listening when when we were listening to it. So tell us how much it is, Ben, because I'm not going to pretend to guess. <laughs> it was 5.2%. Now, inflation is running at 5.1, right? So 5.2 means that for our lowest paid workers, the people who are on the barest of minimum minimum wages, they will get a real increase of five uh, of 0.1%. The the other element of it is that for award workers, they'll get $40 a week or a 4.6% increase, whichever is uh, whichever is the greater of the two. Now, what that does is it means that the minimum wage in this country will go up by about a dollar and five cents. Uh, about a dollar and five cents. That's not a huge jump, right? No, but it is what Labor were promising before the election was that they wanted to see a dollar an hour increase in in minimum wages so that wages could keep pace with inflation. And, wow, Ben, gosh, amazing, a government recommended that, made it a promise, build cultural momentum behind the demand uh, unions absolutely doubled down on the demand for wage increases. And what happened? What happened, Ben? It got delivered. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wonders will never cease. And I want to really stress at this point, absolutely vital to join your union. Oh, yeah. Because 2.7 million people are going to get a pay rise as a result of this case. And it is months of work for many, many people to do this work. And it means that people get a pay rise. And I love how the dog is grunting. <laughs> and and it only happens because unions advocate for it. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union. And, you know, the, the funny thing about this is, of course, the – what did you call them? The capitalist cartels? Yeah, the, the capitalist cartels. The, biz, the business lobby groups, of course, wanted, you know, some of them actually wanted a 0% increase, if you can believe that. Like, cost of living is going up 5.1. The other element I should say here is they're starting to spin, this is going to drive up inflation and it's going to cost jobs and all <sighs> the rest of it, right? The usual sort of stories. Oh, right? yes, it's a disaster. So if you're worried about a wage breakout, capitalist cartel friends. How about you take a pay cut? Imagine that. Imagine if we brought down the benchmarks for executive pay and they all, as a collective class, decided wages were so high that they would take a shave on it. Imagine, because then I'd believe them. When literally, (laughs) when Alan Joyce goes, oh, look, I'm just getting paid way too much, then I'll believe it. Yeah, that's right. It's very rare that a CEO says that the, the there's a wage problem with the uh, in the executive suite. But more, even more to the sort of economic point, right, is that wages have an impact on inflation when wages go up by more than the rate of inflation plus productivity. And this is a point that I think gets lost, right? And it suits it suits the business lobby to pretend that somehow or another, if wages go up by more than just inflation, there'll be some huge outbreak in inflation. That's not true. Productivity has gone up um, between 27 and 2.8%, right? So we're, we're doing more, we're producing more. But we've been doing this for 40 years. Productivity yeah. has 
been going up for 40 years as the workplace becomes more skilled and integrates more machines and does all kinds of things, works harder, works more, does all the stuff. And yet the old, we've discussed this on the show before, you know, that neoliberals will say, oh, well, you know, you can't have wage rises unless you get productivity increases. And it's like it's been 40 years. And we've been having the productivity. And we've been having the products. So... It's almost like trickle-down economic theory doesn't work, Ben. Well, this is the funny thing. Good Lord. <laughs> it's as if we've been lied to. And profits are now- You uh, guys tune in for the show for the voices. <laughs> I know you do. I went to drama school. It's all right. I'm qualified to do them. Profits are at a record level, right? So profit. people are taking, companies are taking more profits out of the economy than ever before. Wages are at a record low part of the economy. There is huge scope for wage increases in the economy before we get anywhere near wages being a driver for inflation. There are inflation is being driven by profiteering, it's being driven by supply shortages, price gouging, that's price what we gouging. Call it. Yeah, like all the all the classic things that drove inflation before the 1970s that we used to keep a control on by having price controls and limiting profits and all those sorts of things. They're actually the things that are causing the problem. Oh, no way. It's almost as if there might be a precedent for this kind of gouging the economy with predictable effects. You know, it was interesting, Ben, um, lefty grandpa, a.k.a. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, was talking about his plan to tax billionaires today. Do you know what billionaires are taxed on average in the United States as a proportion of income? I do not. 8%. That's pretty low. That's pretty low. Yeah. Do you know it's less than uh, cops and nurses are taxed in the United States? And there are lots of cases like that around the world, right? Oh, yeah. And we're seeing- I just like saying lefty grandpa when it comes to Joe Biden. (laughs) But look, I think it's really important that on minimum wage day, we do take a moment to consider the impact on the poor peak- Business lobby. Oh, those groups. poor guys. People like Andrew McKellar, who's the CEO of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Dare I ask how much he gets paid? I, to be honest with you, I don't know, but because I'm going to guarantee you. don't want to make me upset. I can guarantee you it's more than the minimum wage. Um, and I can guarantee you it's more than 5% more than the minimum wage. Um, but he, he, of course, says that it's incredibly difficult to access workers at the moment. Is but, it? But somehow. That another, doesn't sound very true. Somehow or another, it hasn't hasn't quite figured out that that means they should be paying more. And he's quite down on the whole minimum wage process. Like he actually called it antiquated and that we need a more flexible approach. And he was asked, well, what's the alternative? And he said he wants more effective enterprise bargaining. Ooh. Right? So this is- I mean, I like enterprise bargaining, don't you? Yeah. Don't you like collective bargaining? Don't you think that unions should play a role in the workforce in terms of arguing for pay rises and improved conditions on a, you know, workplace by workplace basis? I think, I mean, I'd be in support of that. And this is, you know, it's funny because in a way he's supporting the position that Sally McManus, leader of the trade union movement, made as well, which was that eight and a half million people- are not covered by- That's 75% of the workforce. Are not covered by the minimum wage, are not covered by awards. And so to lift the wages of everyone, we actually need to improve collective bargaining. 
And I'm not sure Andrew McKellar meant to support Sally McManus's point. But good on him, though. Earning his money, isn't he? If he's backing in the leader of the trade union movement, well done, son. Well done. Because, he, of course, he argued against an increase in the minimum wage uh, anywhere near the levels that we're going to see. Uh, and, in fact, he's also said that the, the minimum wage increase, and, again, it's such a disconnect from reality. It's, it's as though... They think that minimum wage workers will take the money and store it in the Cayman Islands. I guess that's their lived experience, right? You get extra money when you're a multimillionaire, you ship it offshore and yeah. minimise the tax, like, you know, lefty grandpas, billionaires in the US, right? Like that's their experience. So they're saying it'll cost $7 billion to the economy. It's like, no, no, mate, it injects the money into the economy because it takes it out of those Cayman Island the, offshore accounts, because puts it in the pockets of low-paid workers who do what with it. We can buy food. Yeah. Yeah, that's literally what what low-paid workers do when they get pay rises is they spend it, unlike capitalist scumbags who hoard it in, like, tax refuges. And that's what the Caymans and Panama and all these other places are. Well, yeah, you're right. And in fact, they had Jordan, this guy Jordan, who's a fast food worker, stood up next to Sally McManus at the press conference and was asked, you know, well, what is this going to mean for you, right? And he said, I know I'm going to be able to work and have the basics covered. Somebody said, well, what are you going to spend the money on? And he said, I'll prob- it'll probably go towards groceries. You learn to be very, very conservative with your money. Oh, yeah. Like this is not a group of people. This 2.7 million Australians are not a group <laughs> of people. They genuinely think people hold their money. I'm just like, you're not the people to run an economy. That's why we have governments. That's what governments, I know this is a big shock for everybody because we had a liberal government for nine years and people have forgotten how that's supposed to work, but governments actually put the brakes on these people so they can't live in their deluded fantasies of money and capital anymore. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty amazing. Like they, they were literally saying <laughs> that AIG, which is another one of the peak bodies. The was, Australian Industry Group. Yeah, their, their CEO, Innes Willex, was trying to say that it, minimum wage should only go up two and a half percent because, and, and again, you got to like the, the the lengths of logic that these people try to go to to justify their greed and why the rest of us should live in poverty is that it should only go up by two and a half percent because people were going to get an increase in super of 0.5 and there were government uh, policies. Uh, in tax that reduced taxes for lower middle income earners by about 1.3%. So really, really the lowest paid are getting a 4.3% increase if we put up the minimum wage by 2.5%. I don't think Innes can maths. I don't think he should be that powerful if he's not mathsing very well. Oh, it, it's uh, it's Because certainly- it's like, here's a bunch of numbers and I'm going to add them up. It's certainly- Bingo! It's certainly an experimental form of mathematics. <laughs> right? We don't need to pay wages because we're giving people tax cuts. And it's like, well, look, there's, there's some merit to say government support and you can have a social wage and all these things. But the reality is cost of living is up, right? Mm. Like what's the lettuce now, $12? A million bucks. I mean, I haven't seen a lettuce in a shop for two weeks. I wouldn't know what it costs because they just don't sell them where we live anymore. No, they don't, do they? No. There is no lettuce there. No. There was something else that was missing yesterday and I was very confronted by it. I can't remember what it was though. But, I mean, this is the point, right? Cost of living is up everywhere. And and this increase for the lowest paid workers 
will help though the people who most need it. Absolutely. But eight and a half million Australians are still without any mechanism to increase their wages except for joining their union, except for taking action. We're seeing it in New South Wales. We've seen it in New South Wales the last six months. Workers collectively coming together, whether they're teachers or transport workers, uh, whether they're public sector workers, whatever sector they're in, saying we're not going to accept these wage caps that are actually going to drive down wages. So hopefully we'll see more people do that. Now, I I do want to break down the numbers because there'll be some people listening will go, well, I, th- I think I'm on an award wage or I'm on a minimum. So what does it what does it actually mean? What do I what should I expect? Right? So if you're if you're on a minimum wage now or an award, that is you don't have a collective agreement in place. Should you, join a union. Get well, a collective agreement. That's the first thing you should do. Yeah. But from July one, you should expect to see your wages increase to twenty twenty one dollars thirty eight an hour, right? they should go up by about $40 a week. So if your wages after July 1 haven't gone up by $40 a week and you think you're on the minimum wage or you think you're on an award. Call your union. Call your union. Like join your union and call your union because you might be subjected to wage theft. Absolutely. If somebody's not passing on increases to your wages, which have been set in law, I mean, Ben and I can probably name a bunch of people you might be working for. Yeah. Did I mention like- Capitalist cartel. <laughs> so if you're and if you're a tradesperson, so if you're a tradesperson and you're getting paid less than eight hundred and sixty nine dollars sixty a week, you know you've done an apprenticeship or you've got your cert for whatever it is, and you're getting paid less than that, then you're probably getting underpaid. So again, make sure you remember your union. Go to AustralianUnions.org.au/slash/wow. You've still got 14 days to join your union before the end of financial year. Do it. You get it's a tax um, deduction. Tax deduction. So you absolutely should do it because in the long run and in the short term, it's better for you. And unionized workers get paid more because they are in collective agreements. If you're in a collective agreement, you're more likely to get paid more. So there's so many good reasons to join, right? The other thing is, though, if you are in hospitality, aviation, or tourism, there is a delay in the increase in the minimum wage, right? And I'm going to read the specific awards, and I know most people won't know which specific award you're covered by, but it's really worth finding out. If you're in the Aircraft Cabin Crew Award or Airline Operations Ground Staff Award or the Air Pilots Award or the Airport Employees Award, the Air Services Australia Enterprise Award, the Alpine Resorts Award or the Hospitality Industry General Award or the Maritime Tourism and Charter Vessels Award or the Registered and Licensed Clubs Award or the Restaurant Industry Award. I just love the Alpine. There's an Alpine <laughs> Award. That's, I mean. If you're if you're covered by one of those awards, if, if your pay is set there, your increase won't take effect until October 1st. Again, if you have doubt, contact your union. Absolutely vital that you do that. They're the people who can help you. There are experts available to assist and to help make sure you get what you're entitled to. It's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing, right? Like I I have to say, Van, I assumed that the minimum wage would go up by maybe three and a half percent. Yeah. I know you said this the other day, but it's incredible. And I think it speaks to the power of government imprimatur. I mean, this is imprimatur is one of my favourite words. Of course, it means giving something a status by putting your 
stamp on it. And when government puts a stamp on a wage claim or a piece of social policy gets behind it, then the world changes. This is what Paul Keating's famous quote, change the prime minister, you change the country. And we're living in a very different country to what we were a month ago. You know, like we've got a government that actually thinks that working people should be paid more as opposed to capitalist parasites. And I think that's great. Look, I think I think it's really great too. And, you know, today uh, Anthony Albanese and the Labor government, I should just call them the government because that's what they are, uh, had But cabinet- they're so Labor. <laughs> they had a cabinet meeting. You in- get a wage rise and you get a wage rise. Everybody gets a wage rise. I'm so in. This is Labor government. <laughs> well, they had a cabinet meeting in Gladstone, right? And you go, oh, Gladstone, but Labor didn't win Gladstone. Uh, and Albo was asked about that. And he's like, well, I intend to be prime minister for everyone, not just the people who voted for me. And hopefully by the time the next election comes, the people who didn't vote for me will go, actually, having an Albanese Labor government is a really good thing. And I'm here in Gladstone because we're in an energy crisis and there's lots of important energy-related issues in Gladstone for us to talk about. And you just go, oh, wow. Suddenly the prime minister is no longer just a self-serving, vacuous Parasite. He's actually a guy who's trying to build the nation. And when he was asked about the minimum wage increase, because of course he gave a press conference, um, he said, These heroes of the pandemic deserve more than thanks. They deserve a pay rise. And today they got it. You know, it's so clear, such a clear statement of values. Tony Burke, who's the Minister for Workplace Relations and Employment, said the era of wages being kept deliberately low by the Liberal and National Parties came to an end today. It's pretty amazing. You know, it is literally a whole new country. Uh, We're only three and a half weeks in, right? Now, as I said before, and as you pointed out, 75% of people aren't on the minimum wage. They need other forms and other mechanisms to actually put up wages. And Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, made this point, right, that the current system is failing those people. It's unable to deliver wage increases despite low unemployment, high productivity, and high profits. Working people are feeling the serious consequences of nearly 10 years of inaction by the previous government. Our country needs to take a fresh look at this problem and address it. We cannot be satisfied with a wage-setting process that leaves wage workers living in poverty and delivers real wage cuts for the average worker. Like, I think that's a really strong point. Yeah, it is a really strong point. And I I mean, this is the thing, you know, there's got to be prosperity across the economy. And one of the things that actually helps everyone is increasing the spending power of those who do not hoard their money in the Cayman Islands. And that's what we've got to be focused on. Like, are we trying to rebuild an economy that works for everybody? You know, are we trying to create that? I mean, creating demand for jobs involves having a community. Forgive me for explaining capitalism to people, but you need a community of people who are driving demand for goods and services. Yeah. And then jobs get created to meet that demand. That demand only exists if you give people money. This was a handy lesson that was learnt during the Great Depression. Imagine if we actually drew some historical insight from like presidential events. And it's important too to remember that when there is a supply-driven inflation crisis. I love it when you talk about supply-driven inflation Well, cri- that's crisis. what we have. We yeah, have I know, effectively, but it's, it's hot. Well, we have a supply-driven inflation crisis. If you don't give people the capacity to keep up 
with that cost of living, right? That's what a supply driven demand crisis is. You just impoverish and wreck people and, and put more pressure on government services than the state. Did and, you know that? Yeah, that's right. And you will create, there will come a point where companies who would otherwise be happy to produce won't be able to produce because there'll be no one to buy their products because the inputs from the supply side will price their products out of the reach of people who would otherwise buy them, who would otherwise buy a lettuce if a lettuce was $3 as opposed to $7. You know, I've barely been getting over the cultural shaming of eating avocado and now it turns out that lettuce is the must-have accessory of the middle class this season. I know. If only lettuces, you know, if only if only the whatever generation we are now, the ABZ generation, didn't eat so much lettuce that have already had their fourth investment property. Yeah, of course. I do recommend everybody that you get one of those self-watering um pots. You can get them at like reject shops and you can usually buy lettuce seeds really cheaply and lettuce and a bit of potting mix and lettuces are quite easy to grow. If you're missing it, it, it's probably, I haven't done the maths on this myself, but I probably could by the end of the show. It's probably cheaper to grow your own lettuce. I think we've tipped over the point where mass production of lettuce is no longer um, the cheaper way of doing it. In fact, we have to go back to cottage grown lettuce in order to bring down the overall market price. I'm just saying that one of my <laughs> great socialist heroes, the Australian Bill Mollison, who was the father of permaculture and one of Australia's truly great activists and philosophers, he said seizing the means of production begins in your own backyard. Indeed it does. I'm just saying. Well, talking of seizing the means of production. Which is like what we do every day in this house. <laughs> We're so up for seizing the means of production. Paul Erickson is the National Secretary of the Australian Labor Party. and while an interesting segue, Ben, yes. Well, the Labor Party has effectively seized, seized the means of production. <laughs> Good thing there's still a socialist objective in the Labor Party platform. And those of you who don't believe us, I think it's on page four <laughs> and is quite explicit about what the socialist objective is. Look, I do want to say that Paul Paul made a point in his uh, address to the to the uh, National Press Club that uh, the mood for change uh, that was generated in the lead up to the election uh, was one of renewal, not revolution. And in fact, I think I quote tweeted that in the week on Wednesday uh, uh, Twitter feed, so you can, you can find that there. So for those who are listening to this, suddenly very concerned that the uh, Soviet Union of uh, Australian republics is about to break out, don't worry, that's not what Paul was promising at the press club. And for, for those who are disappointed, well, you know, maybe get more people to vote Labor next time. Yeah, and see keep how at it. Go. Yeah, the size of the majority... <laughs> Determines I, the, I have the this. Of the I have a hilarious program. niche niche joke, which Ben just loves. Which is, what's the difference between a social democrat and a socialist? What a social democrat is the socialism you can get away with. Well, look, I think it was really it was a really interesting address from from uh, Paul Erickson because Labor obviously won the election. Uh, they, you know, they won it with the largest majority since Tony Abbott in 2013. Uh, and he talked about some of the key ways in which Labor went about it. He broke down the timelines. It was a really interesting discussion, right? And like some of the key points that I think are really relevant for the people who listen to us, Van, mm-hmm. are things like. Labor talked about the future rather than just more of the same, whereas Morrison was very fixated on, I will keep doing what I've been doing. Um, 
on the on the fence. Yeah, that's not what people <laughs> want, buddy. Hey, no. And look, but there was a point in the election cycle where that message may have won it, right? And it was really when Morrison demonstrated that his version of leadership was the go to Hawaii on holiday, force people to shake his hand, lie about stuff, uh, that that started to tip. Don't worry about the climate. It'll fix itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's not how that works. And then it really nailed down when the the lack of understanding of women's experience uh, was portrayed when he talked about how, you know, as a father of daughters and Jenny told me this. Yeah, Jenny explained to me rape was bad and reminded me that I have daughters and if they were raped, that was bad. Wow, it never occurred to me to have empathy for anybody I wasn't related to or even, hear me out, imagine myself into that situation. Can you imagine? Those women were lucky to have not been met with bullets when they turned up going, here is a list of things that you really should care more about. And it was really the kind of... (sighs) sense that more of the same would be a bad outcome. So even though people were tired because of COVID, even though there was a sort of deep sense of fatigue, anxiety, and and risk aversion, people felt there was more risk in having Morrison do more of Morrison than have Albanese come in and try and build a better future, right? Like Mm. this whole slogan, which is really, when you think about it, quite a remarkable set of circumstances because it's really unusual when people are feeling fatigued and risk averse that they will change government. It's normally a sign that government is going to be returned. Uh, But some of the stuff that uh, Ericsson talked about was that the Morrison government started a background who was making decisions during the pandemic and the group of people who were really in charge of the country like this is the same time when they were attacking state governments, right? And and they were trying to kind of go, yeah, but federally we've got it all together. And it was pointed out that 13 of the 14 people who they were kind of saying were in charge were all men. And that a week later they cancelled the free childcare uh, subsidy that was in place during the pandemic and they cancelled JobKeeper for childcare workers. Like it was this whole disconnect from the lived experience of people. Oh, look, and I I did some writing about this at the time about analysing Morrison's election strategy, which in the past had been incredibly successful for him and for previous Labor, I mean Liberal bleh, Prime Ministers, is that the whole Morrison getting posing in high vis. Like I was scratching my head, going, why is he constantly? playing up to these sort of masculine stereotypes. And you'll notice even when he did go into feminised workplaces like uh, the hairdressers famously or when he did the bar class, yeah. he always wore a tie and it was interesting because he'd, you know, wear casual clothes to go to the football or whatever and make himself look as a blokey bloke, blokey bloke as possible. But whenever he was around women, he made he really pursued these aggressive masculine stereotypes. And it's because overwhelmingly in this country we have one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the OECD. That is that there are jobs that men do and jobs that women do. Notoriously, the jobs that women do are very low-paid yep. and consistently so. Um, and it and was we, should, big, we should say that a lot of the 2.7 million people who- Who will get a pay rise are women. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Because women also in this country at the moment are joining unions in vast numbers because yeah. this is an unsustainable situation for them. But the way that the the 
um, economy voting bargain has traditionally been struck in this country is that if you are in an Australian household, um, which is a heteronormative household, say it's a um, a male earner, a female earner, and some children. Yeah. That that the male breadwinner model is still baked in the old context of the harvester judgment, the 1950s woman at home kind of. Yeah. And in terms of the way that our workplace has evolved, we still overwhelmingly give women care responsibilities, which is one of the reasons why women are overwhelmingly in insecure work because they're caring for sometimes simultaneously children and older relatives and everybody else and running the household and doing the majority of the cleaning and cooking and food preparation and, you know, the rest of it. Yeah. So households make a decision around an economic decision around the male breadwinner. And that's what the Liberals have been communicating very subtly for years. And it's all the, you know, men with other men doing manly things kind of public performance was and that was focused on the workplace was liberals going oh if you work for us the male breadwinner will if you vote for us the male breadwinner will earn more money yeah and that's consistently been the message well that has changed and if we're looking at the teal phenomenon which you know yeah. is people who essentially should be liberals breaking away from the liberal party overwhelmingly one of the demographics that came out of the election was that you had professional women who weren't dependent on the male breadwinner model for their economic survival going, yeah, I'm not going to be met with bullets. That's not a thing that is acceptable. And making voting choices based around a new paradigm that Morrison just wasn't really capable of catching up with. And it's really interesting you say that because the the subtlety or the lack of subtlety around the high-vis versus the suit and tie washing hair stuff, right, mm. it, it stopped at the water's edge. So it stopped at symbolism and didn't actually ever make its way into tangible outcomes, right? And, and this came out in the campaign, and Erickson talked about it, and, of course, we've talked about it before too, that the last two and a half weeks of the campaign were really about who was actually going to try and increase wages? So Morrison forever was trying to push this idea, well, government doesn't determine wages. I don't set wages. Markets set it's wages. It's not my job. It's not my job not my to job. do that. It's not my job. You know, it was a real- It's not my job. It was a real sort of positioning that, you know, small government and business will determine wages and our job is just to make sure there's enough jobs and if there's enough jobs, then wages will grow. Of course, people's lived experiences, even the male bread in the male breadwinner model, was that wasn't working. No, right? it wasn't working. And so he had Labor campaigning, as he said, we campaigned consistently on the need to boost wages growth. It was in our TV ads, and we pointed out there were plenty of things the federal government could do. And these are all things you and I have talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. The union movement talks about it's all the time. It's literally the point of having a government. Right? It's supporting the minimum wage case. Tick. Minimum wages are up. Investing in TAFE and training, boosting workforce participation through cheaper childcare, giving workers more job security, investing in industries that will grow and provide employment opportunities in the future. Like climate jobs. Like climate jobs. (laughs) But this is the thing, right? So the Liberals were trying to argue that Morrison was trying to argue that we were recovering strongly. We were the envy of the developed world. We were such a great position. But like every time we got asked the question, well, what are you going to do to fix some of these like wage stagnation, Not cost of living issues? Not my job. Oh, government can't do anything. Not my job. And then when Albo was like, well, actually, I do think wages should go up and I will make the argument that they should, suddenly the prospect that government would and could do something triggered Morrison to have a 
oh, this is a loose unit. It's going to bring the whole house down. Everything's going to collapse. And and I really liked this line. Um, the, the Liberals claimed that the sky would fall in, undercutting their assertion about the strength of the recovery. It wasn't just incompetent, it was incoherent. Oh, and not to mention that we have been finding out again and again and again and again uh, about areas of governance that the Liberals just couldn't manage. Now, it's really interesting. You were telling me the other day, speaking about the sky falling in. So the National Gallery, which is based in Canberra, the repository of Australia's public-owned art collection, it has $6 billion worth of art in it. And weren't you telling me the other day that yeah. there are cracks in the walls of the storage facility? Yeah, they were literally. there was an article I saw the other day where they were saying literally it's starting to fall apart. It is literally starting to fall apart. This is where we are, that the governance of the Morrison, like $6 billion, can you imagine $6 billion worth of assets just basically exposed to like it, it's the elements. just <laughs> the elements and it's a really great, I mean, we all know that they don't value art, but I thought they did value money and they didn't. No. Oh, also on this, I've got to throw this in. It was my favourite. So there was an amazing puff piece about Susan Legs, the new oh, deputy yes. yeah. leader of the Liberal Party, now Susan Legs, yes. um, the member for Farrah, um, who, who renamed herself Susan with two S's because she knew it would give her an amazing life. She was doing this puff piece about, yeah, you know, who I am and whatever. And they, they were like, they mentioned that she had been a former minister. She was like, I was never really comfortable with being called a minister. I mean, because that's just not who I am. And I just thought, then why are you in Parliament? Like, what are you doing? Well, what's your what's your deal, love? Like, it, it was really- That's not who I am. It strikes to their ideology, right? Their ideology is that government can't or shouldn't do things. Uh, the government isn't, isn't actually a mechanism. Whereas Labor, at the core of Laborism, is the notion that working people banding together- and electing governments in their interest will pass laws and regulate economies in the interests of working people. And that that's a proactive and active piece of governance that has to take place. Because we know that very wealthy individuals allowed to do whatever they like will do what's in their interest. And that is very rarely very, very rarely. In anybody else. In anybody else's. Yeah. For example, Elon, Jeff Bezos, Elon yeah, Musk. Jeff Bezos, <laughs> Elon Musk and Branson in their competition to to fly the most impressive phallic-like object into space. That's really not in our interests. That's not where we We have problems to solve on this planet before we start, you know, exporting our poison to others. And But the amount of resources that are burned up. Like these are guys who bust unions uh, in Jeff Bezos' case has been responsible responsible for, for like some of the worst industrial conditions on the face of the earth, yeah. spending money on flying rockets into the sun. Oh, no, sorry, that's <laughs> what I'm dreaming. And, I mean, Paul Erickson made this point in his uh, address to the National Press Club today, that there were eight key things that really um, created the, the conditions for Labor to win. Um, and... They were these. That the, there was a refusal on the behalf of the Morrison government to accept responsibility for anything. Um, that essentially, its small government ideology meant that it's not my job. It's not my job. It's not my job. And you, and they couldn't. They couldn't. I don't hold a hose, mate. And it meant that people went. These people just don't want to do the job. They don't want to be ministers. They don't want to do what we need them it's to do. It's just not really me. It's just not really me. It's not really me. 
that there was a. Please stay in the leadership team, Peter Dutton and Susan Lay, and Labor can be in government a thousand years. So there was mismanagement of the pandemic. We all saw that Christmas, that horrendous Christmas where. You know, the apparently he said three times in one day he said it wasn't a race. I didn't realise this, but it was apparently three times in the one day he said- It's um, not a race, not a competition. Not a race, not, not a race, not a competition. I love the fact that all the Labor Party really had to do in terms of their attack ads was run things that Morrison had actually said. I remember they then tried to make a counter ad, which was putting what he said into context- and the context just made it worse. Yeah. Just demonstrated how out of touch he was. But people are just told all their money in the Cayman Islands bit. Yeah, well, that's right. You that's know? what they'll all those do. those minimum wage workers. Yeah, those guys. Their money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then, of course, there was the Josh Frydenberg, the whole cabinet coming out and attacking state governments in Victoria, Queensland, WA. Remember when Christian, I think Christian Porter was still Attorney General. I mean, he? he's the guy you want out the front of your campaign, really, Christian. I don't know where the money came from, Porter, yeah. I think he was still Attorney General when the Morrison government decided they were going to back Clive Palmer's uh, attempt to sue the WA government. Yep. Lo and behold, was it four or five seats in WA went to Labor? Including Christian Porter's. <laughs> I don't even know who the Liberal candidate was in that seat. Well, I don't think anybody did. Um, Anya, Tracy. Tracy won it, by the way. Very good. And the budget, the budget management, of course, was an absolute shambles. Like people just, if you can't take responsibility for things, you can't then claim to have- manage the budget well, because if you aren't responsible, then you're not responsible, right? You don't get credit if you're not responsible. Um, and the incoherence around cost of living, like a dollar an incre- a dollar increase in the minimum wage was somehow or another going to destroy this world-leading economy. Like that didn't make sense to people. Uh, of course, the, that period of time, it seems hard to believe, Van, that it was less than a month ago we were talking about a crisis with our Pacific neighbours. Yeah. And we, we talked about this on the show, right? Before Hurricane Penny hit the Pacific <laughs> and suddenly Australia was like a foreign policy powerhouse and we're all like, wow. And then she appeared on TV speaking Bahasa and it's all like, yeah, she's got this remember, pretty much under control. It was like a month ago we were talking about the Solomon Islands and being cut off from our strategic oil reserves by China. Yeah, we were literally doing that yeah, podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd, I mean, one, we should have our strategic oil reserve should be physical properties in Australia. In Australia. That, that is, I mean, you know, we love talking about strategic oil reserves, especially them not being in America, which they currently are, and then being real and tangible things yeah. as opposed to a promise from America. Um, yeah, and of course, Penny Wong has been doing visit after visit after visit across the Pacific, and building up, you know, Australia's imports, and it's it's rather impressive. And and talking about climate change, yeah, can you imagine? Because that's actually a really serious issue for Pacific countries that may cease to exist in the context of rising sea levels. And they're having that conversation as opposed to Australia having, remember that Zoom-based sulk about climate change that Scott Morrison is just like, oh, thank God it's over. Thank God, thank God, thank God. Well, climate change is one of the things that people basically went, well, he's never going to take this seriously. And, in fact, that nobody believed that he actually was ever going to do anything about it. No, no, no one believed it. There was just no... No belief in it, even though, you know, the Liberals were suggesting otherwise. And, of course, we've talked about how women's experience. But I think there's a couple – I want to round out on these couple of points. One is that Labor actually won low-income voters. Um, there was a swing towards Labor and low-income voters and median-income voters, full-time employees, TAFE-educated uh, people and women. 
um, as well as a swing towards labor from men in general. These are this runs counter to the kind of narrative that you're seeing out there going, oh, Labor won all these wealthy electorates. Actually- No, Labor didn't win those electorates. It won Higgins. And it won Higgins primarily through booths that are renters and lower income parts of that seat. That's actually where where Labor won. And Paul Erickson was asked about, you know, uh, he was asked about, well, now the Greens have a bit of a mandate- uh, and they're four seats, and and uh, and what do you think about the the greens? Um, and and do you want to do you want to talk about what he said? <sighs> no, you should do it. You do it. Um, well, he basically said that the greens have spent twenty years building a campaign operation, which is to always seem like you're two steps to the left of Labor, give Labor no credit for any form of progress. Wedge them on every issue, like Always be divisive. Absolutely rubbish motions in the Senate. So I get contacted by a lot of people who are like, why did Labor vote against this thing, right? And it's always the Greens put up some nonsense motion in the Senate where they have enough numbers to, like, put a motion. Um, they don't have enough money, numbers to pass it, of course, and it means nothing because it's got to go back to the lower house. We've had Liberal government for nothing. Like, and it's always something like every, every worker should be given a million dollars and a new hat or whatever. It's always something... That's not in the capacity of anybody to deliver it. It's often money bills which They're are not allowed to originate in the Senate. Yeah, exactly. They're not allowed to originate in the Senate. Labor vote against these things because they are a party of government and need to be taken seriously. And then the Greens hit social media going, you know, Labor voted against an increase for Centrelink recipients, which sounds really bad if yeah. you're not paying attention. And, you know, people, I, we get letters from time to time with people going, why don't you ever talk about the Greens? And quite frankly, it's because they're irrelevant to the public policy conversation. They're not a serious party. Anybody who is serious about government who's on the left gets involved in the Labor Party. And the analysis that Ben and I have, just so we can be really clear, there are only really two parties in Australia. There is the Labor Party and there are there's the anti-Labor Party and that's everyone else because people who are serious about about collective values and the spoiler alert is in the term collective. Yeah. That that's the beliefs we hold in the union movement that a fist is stronger than five fingers, that you know, the workers united will never be defeated. Like we are what in sociological terms is called a Gemeinschaft movement. That is a collective one where everybody's in it together, like hive, like lots of bees. The bee, by the way, is the symbol for the city of Manchester, which is the home of the British socialism that Ben and I subscribe to, and the origins of Western Anglophonic socialist values and the Owenite movement. We can talk about this at length another time. <laughs> However, we have bee t-shirts from Manchester. They're quite cool. But but this is the thing, that if you have that ethos, if you are a collectivist, if you believe the Workers United will never be defeated, you do things like join unions and you create a labourist political party called the Labour Party to represent those collective interests. And, yes, it is a very flawed premise because in a democracy you actually have to win a majority in order to govern. You need a majority of seats and a majority of electorates. And that means, like I said, the difference between social democrats and socialists is social democrats are the socialism you can get away with. There are things about socialism that, unfortunately, not everybody agrees with yet. I genuinely believe if they listen to this podcast – 
they will come to see the logic of our economic opinions and our political values and get on board. But the Greens are not part of that. The Greens don't have a socialist objective in their platform. They're not a party that have an ideological commitment to egalitarianism. They're a party that the Liberals have been described, have described, and there are articles about this, saying that they're quite lockstep with the financial principles of the Liberal Party. Like, this has been said. The fact that they constantly hammer and create these scare campaigns and smear campaigns against the Labor Party, like, is very indicative of the collective boat that they are not sailing on. And I just want to make one more point, and I mentioned this in an article I wrote the other day, right? Those swings to the Greens in Queensland, they didn't come from Labor voters. They came from Liberal voters. Terry Butler, who is a democratic socialist and one of the most, like, politically pure people I've ever met in my life, who is not in Parliament anymore, like, she didn't... Have a, she had like a 2% swing against her. She which was, would not have been enough to knock off her margin. Which wouldn't have been enough to yeah. knock off her margin. The seat of Griffith that she represented, Kevin Rudd's old seat in Brisbane, yeah. has undergone massive gentrification in the past eight years. We know that green voters overwhelmingly leave, they move into areas that are gentrified. We know that. Yeah. Melbourne, Brisbane, you know, bits of Sydney and the rest of it. We know that overwhelmingly green voters went to private schools and overwhelmingly they have parents who vote for the Liberal Party. And that's the demographics. Like the study has been done. They are the single richest group of electors in in Australia. Like more, they, they have a higher collective income, like individualised yeah. collective in- income than any other voters. By the way, the poorest voters in Australia vote for the National Party. And I'd just like to say, hey, guys, how's that worked out for you? But moving on. But in Terry Butler's seat, so Terry had a 2% swing. She also had a redistribution where richer parts of a neighbouring electorate were added yeah. to hers. And the the 10% swing that the Greens got, what a coincidence, there was a 10% swing away from the Liberal Party. So let's not go with, oh, yeah, the Greens are replacing Labor because, you know, they're this left-wing party. They talk a really great game. And personally, I'm in favour of their civil libertarian positions. Yeah. Like I absolutely believe that, you know, marriage equality is a fundamental human right. And I absolutely believe in drug decriminalisation. Yeah. Not necessarily all the Greens believe that. And historically, when push comes to shove, the actual legislation, the rubber hits the road, the Greens voted against an emissions trading scheme when the Labor government put yeah. it up. The Greens voted against Labor's attempts to reinstate the Fraser refugee processing system. So people talk about the golden age of human rights and refugees under Malcolm Fraser and the bipartisanship of Fraser and Whitlam working together in order to get refugees particularly from Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam to Australia. That's what Malaysia was when Labor were talking about, you know, Malaysia processing. That's literally what Fraser did. Yeah. Right in much worse conditions than were being negotiated, and the Greens blocked it. Well, it's interesting because, of course, Greens do have a number of positions in local councils around Australia too. Oh, this is one of your favourites. Well, because housing is such an important part of of any person's ability to embrace opportunity. If you don't have secure housing, your capacity to have secure employment, your capacity to have secure income, your capacity to participate in society is severely limited. We know this. Study after study shows this. And that's why you're seeing Labor state governments and Albanese's Labor federal government. Because if one person knows the power of social housing, it's Anthony Albanese. We have a prime minister who came from social housing now. So it's absolutely front and centre. 
At the same time, we see time and time again liberal local councillors blocking housing development. And green local councillors yeah. block housing, local housing development. That's what the- There's always a reason. My personal favourite was in the city of Yarra when they blocked building low-income housing for um, aged- Retirees. Aged retirees, like retirees on limited incomes. And there was an initiative to build targeted low-cost housing for essentially- Geriatric poor people, yeah, and the Greens blocked it because one tree was in the way. It wasn't and even that old, yeah. And the, but there's always some kind of nimby. Oh no, we can't. Not in my backyard, kind of yeah. thing. And you had um, VCOS, the Victorian Council of Social Services, very uh, various other like pro social yeah. equity um, groups come out in Victoria, like saying it is literally the Greens who are voting with the Liberals in the state government to stop public and social housing developments here. Yep, and it's happening right around the country. You see it in local councils where green councillors are voting against has oh, it's inappropriate to have inappropriate development. And and inappropriate development, by the way, everybody means poor people, just yeah. in case you didn't know. Often voting against things like four-story buildings, buildings that in places like Oslo are absolutely commonplace. Ah, uh, yes, that right-wing dystopia Oslo. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, this sort of nonsense that somehow or another a four-story, you know, replacing single single-story individualized dwellings that are owned by very wealthy Greens voters with four-story multi, uh, multi-dwelling multi properties would somehow be just create some dystopian nightmare. It's like, mm, like no. Scandinavia, what a terrible place. Having you and I have both, you live. Reduces emissions too, by the way. By the- people don't have to commute for two hours in a car. Anyway, so. Yes, so just so everybody knows, Ben lived in Oslo and in Norway and I've spent, I worked in Sweden and in Denmark and spent a long time in Finland. So Scandinavia is kind of our yeah. patch. And you know, it's not awful there. No, it's not awful there. They get it. So, look, I mean, Ericsson's Ericsson's final point around how divisive the Greens are and how they attack Labor, he literally said, that's what Adam's entire adult life has been about. And I thought that was a really, a really good line. The other thing was Phil Curry, who, you know, regular listeners will know I'm no huge fan of. Uh, basically tried to suggest that Labor didn't didn't win the election and said, what can you do to win in your own right next time? And Paul Erickson said, we did win in our own right. We won 77 seats. You know, and and Labor didn't even have to call itself five different things to get elected, unlike the Liberal Party, the National Party, the Liberal National Party, the Country Liberal Party. <laughs> Like it is really. Labor didn't have to run a diffusion brand. No, Labor has a twenty-seat buffer between it and the next largest party. Like that's a huge gap. Yeah, it's only got two-seat majority, but they're a long way ahead. Oh, by the way, there is some breaking news. Andrew Constance, who you may remember from totally destroying public transport in the state of New South Wales, uh, decided to. To leave the sinking ship, you can yeah, make yeah, a yeah. decision yourself what kind of mammal he is. He lost by 300 and something votes to Fiona Phillips, who's yep. the Labor incumbent in the city of Gilmore. Well, the AEC has refused his request for a recount. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, which is very interesting, saying that his accusations of a lack of scrutiny, no, they don't hold water. No, you're going to have to get a real job, Andrew. Sorry. Um, speaking of people who need a real job, <laughs> the... 
power companies. He said in front of his artist partner, which I just love. Yes, <laughs> we have this. We have this discussion a lot in this house. Yeah, the power companies in this country are doing a terrible, terrible job. Oh no way! Really, the privatized power companies that literally <laughs> everyone with a basic social conscience warned would do exactly this. So at the moment, and. You know, all the discussion around energy prices and all the rest of it, I want to give people really briefly a snapshot of what's happening. So coal-fired power in this country is unreliable. 25% of the coal-fired generators in this country are currently offline. No, say it ain't so. That's not what I was told by Andrew Bolt. I was told that, you know, that that, uh, windmills were just evil. Well, it turns out, no. Ate birds and had faces and did something, gave you mouth sores. Yeah. So the the coal-fired generators are offline, uh, 25% of them are. It means the price of electricity has been skyrocketing. We've talked a bit about this on the weekend wrap already. There's some points here I want to make that the, the National uh, Energy Market Regulator has stepped in. The government has said we have to cap the price. Now, of course, some of these generators are now saying they don't want to generate because they say, oh, we can't make the profit that we were going to make. Because this is what happens when you privatise things. Now, let's be clear. The pricing caps kick in at $300 per megawatt hour, right? So it's not as though they're demanding the energy for free. Uh, In New South Wales, these privatised companies dragged three gigawatts out of the system Yesterday, Chris Bowen has spoken with the regulator and has reassured the country that there will not be rolling blackouts, which the generators were trying to suggest there would be, uh, but that, that will not happen because the regulator has stepped in and enforced generation on these companies who have the capacity to do it. But I'll give you an example. So at $300 a megawatt hour under the cap, that's what we have to pay, right? Collectively, we're going to have to pay that. Some of the manufacturers in this country will be losing large sums of money, and it may cost jobs. In Tasmania, who is not a state that the Liberal government has not put under the capping system. So the Liberal government said, no, no, we're not going to participate in the capping system. How, how much do you think they're paying per megawatt hour? The Eastern Seaboard's $300. Yep, we capped at it. Yep. Yep, that's our cap. What do you think Tasmania is currently paying? I don't even want to think about it. $15,100. Whoa! $15,000 because they're not subject to the cap, right? So when, when we talk about our energy market in this country, we need to understand that it is not it is not a simple oh, supply and demand, Right. Generators can withdraw supply. They can take those coal-fired generators offline, and that's what they've done. They can refuse to put energy into the system, and that's what they've done. When demand is high because it's cold in New South Wales and Queensland, it's colder there at the moment than it normally is. And, and they're all very confused by it. They don't understand <laughs> the cold. And Whereas Ben and I live in Ballarat. Cold is where we're at. And it's and it's Ballarat, cold is where we're at. And we're used to it, right? So when there is a supply and demand crunch on the system, there is scope for these privatised corporations to make huge profits. 
And that's why the regulator is supposed to be able to step in. I just want to remind everybody that when you sign up to a power company, right, and you might pick green energy or red energy or blue energy or whatever the brand is calling itself, a switch doesn't get flicked that your power supply comes from a different generator or a different provider. It's actually all a nonsense. Yeah, it's pretty much all in the same grid, right? Like most of the energy that is generated in Australia it all goes into the same grid and you can kind of, you know, you can pay a bit more to have carbon offsets and you can, you know, in some cases you can get direct supply, but it's complex and you've got to be large enough. And, you know, for most households, the reality is there are so many intermediaries. There's a retailer, there's a wholesaler, and there's a generator. And each person, each company in that chain is taking a clip from your power bill. Now, state governments have been working on this. And in Victoria, for example, there is like a base price that the companies have to offer. In other states, they have similar systems. In places like WA, where this, the grid is state-owned, their power prices are nowhere near what we're experiencing on the eastern seaboard. So it is important to understand that ownership matters, control matters, regulation matters. I'd just like to do a shout out to my union comrades who fought so hard against privatisation in Western Australia and I was part of that campaign and I just want to say you're all legends and it was an honour, an honour to be active with you. So if you compare the if you compare the situation in Tasmania where essentially you've got this free marketeering government, $15,000 per megawatt hour. Now, how anybody can operate a, a manufacturing business, anyone can operate a heater in that environment. And it's cold down it, there. It's cold. Yeah, just just consign all of Tasmania to poverty. I mean, they have a housing crisis. I mean, everybody knows yeah. that in Tasmania. They, you do, right? That Tasmania's got a terrible housing crisis. And people were, like, living on the showgrounds in Hobart because there was nowhere to live, rentals are through the roof. Like, it's become really difficult. And now power prices are also out of control, and that's going to be felt by manufacturers who are employers. Great. This sounds absolutely fabulous. I think That's sarcasm, by the way. I rather like Tasmania. Yeah. I've never been wronged by a Tasmanian. I think the, I think one of the key things to take away from this is- <laughs> That I've never been wronged by a Tasmanian. <laughs> but, Apart but, from that one guy on Twitter, and you know, if you're listening, you're obsessed with me and it's got to stop. But Bowen made the point, right, that this system needs to be fixed and all of the state ministers have agreed to continue to meet about this and to kind of come to some kind of- better situation than we have because the regulator is stepping in. The regulator is doing what it can in the circumstances that it has and, and using the tools that it has available to it. And Bowen was asked about that today and he said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to preempt the regulator here, right? But I am going to support the regulator in doing everything it can to bring down power prices. But obviously myself and the state ministers need to work out how we avoid this situation ever occurring again. And a big part of that is actually getting more renewables into the system. That are owned by the state. Getting more uh, wind, uh, solar, uh, you know, getting more uh, pumped hydro, actually bringing more uh, power online and improving the transmission and actually reducing the uh, – the corporatization of what is an essential service. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't allow the privatization of air. Most places we haven't allowed the privatization of water. Electricity is fundamental to living in a modern society. 
this is a serious, serious issue. And, of course, Van, our good news that we should end the show on. This is just the best news ever. I'm so happy about this. Is the great state of Western Australia has, because it does have state-owned electricity assets. Yes, and an absolutely thumping majority with a Labor government, I'd like to point out. You know, getting back to our subject about, you know, why do you think the Greens are irrelevant? Because they've had no part in this whatsoever. This is about a Labor-led government in Western Australia with an overwhelming thumping majority. And what's happening, Ben? They are going to shut down its coal-fired power stations by 2030. So by the end of 2029, uh, there will be no more uh, coal-fired power coming out of WA. Uh, but at the same time, let's be clear about this. This is not the kind of cut and run that we've seen from privatised corporations. Who in, just shut up shop. In and, New South Wales. Yeah. And we had, it, we had it in Victoria as well where communities were smashed. This is- A transition plan. A proper transition plan. $660 million will be spent and invested by- the WA government into the town of Collie, which is where uh, the state-owned coal-fired power plants are. Uh, $300 million will be spent on decommissioning the plants, so there's a pipeline of work there for the workers, and $250 million to bring industry to Collie. Uh, Mark McGowan has said, and I quote, we want to make sure that Collie remains prosperous and successful, that people going to school in Collie can continue to have a good job here in this community. We owe it to Collie. They've done a lot for the state over the last 130 years, and we want to make sure this town and community have a long-term, viable and prosperous future. Well, this is the thing, Ben. You know, I got asked about this in an ABC interview the other day. It was like, well, why don't we just shut down coal mining? It's like, look, everybody knows that's going to happen. Everybody knows it's the trajectory that the world is on. You know, we can't keep pumping emissions into the air. We have to move away from fossil fuels. But communities are right to go, well, what's the plan? And we've seen in other countries, and we talk about what happened in Poland, where workers revolted and, you know, and backed in a hard right government, that horrible government yeah. in Poland that bans abortions and is, fires judges and is awful, were backed in by coal communities who weren't being offered a transition that kept them alive. You know, you and I have made this point before that, Prophesying of environmental hell doesn't really work on communities that are looking at a shutdown of industry that will leave people unemployed with no income, no hope, no support, and their houses being devalued overnight. And this is what people don't understand when they think about these communities, that once industry is gone, once there's no reason for the town to exist, property values fall through the floor. Yeah, that's right. You know, and you can't go, oh, man, it could be really bad for the environment. Like In the, 10 years. Yeah, in 10 years when people are like, well, what about the next 10 minutes? Like what are you talking about? There's no coal community on the earth that doesn't know what is coming. It's about the equity of of how those workers and communities are transitioned that makes these kind of shutdowns possible. And one of the things that I always hark back to is I've seen footage from the 50s and the 60s where workers were encouraged to move to places like Collie, uh, like the Hunter Valley, like um, the Trove Valley in Gippsland in Victoria, uh, to work in coal-fired power, that people should come here, that these were helping build our nation, that the energy grid was going to you know, give us the economic prosperity of the nation, that these were communities of heroes, a bit like the pandemic, right? This idea that workers as heroes. And suddenly, in for many of these communities, 
they feel as though they are being villainized, that somehow or another they are the bad guys. And it's like, hang on a minute. Yeah, wanting a well-paid job is not bad. Remember what I was saying before about the male breadwinner model? Yeah. Like I want people to grasp what what that means economically and socially and materially in these communities. Like, yes, because this is, you know, the environment movement regularly says, oh, yeah, but, you know, mining is just a few jobs. It's a few extremely well-paid jobs that support subsidiary businesses. And it's like coal mining supports laundries, which may not mean a lot to you if you don't work in one of those communities, but let me tell you, if you're getting covered in coal dust every day, it means a lot. Yeah. You know, laundries and small businesses and, you know, local facilities and all of these things. And having the industry means you get schools and you get school teachers and you like this whole ecosystem of jobs surrounds that industry. That's why we have these industrial-based communities and why they fight so hard for every job. And, you know, we know, I know growing up in Ballarat, you look around Ballarat, you see how gold coming out of the ground, even though it wasn't every, not everybody worked in gold mining in, you know, the, at the turn of the 20th century in Ballarat, but you could see the wealth of the town. You could see that there's bluestone buildings, that schools, there's more schools in Ballarat than you can poke a stick at because of the wealth that was generated there. And then, of course, you had all these different economic transitions, some of them very poorly managed. And there was a time where places like Ballarat, they tried to make manufacturing hubs, obviously how it smashed that, huge amounts of unemployment. And that's the danger that we have in coal mining communities. To So to see WA go, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have Collie become a 25% unemployment and everybody's house is worth nothing. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have that period here. We're going to invest. We're going to get renewables on the grid. We're going to create jobs. It's fantastic and to see. And create industrial jobs as well. I mean, this is another argument that I have with, you know, well-meaning people in the environment movement. It's like people go, oh, we can have ecotourism and we can have hospitality. And it's like those jobs pay 40% of what mining jobs do. Like you're literally telling someone to take a 60% pay cut and it's like, would you do it? You know, this is constantly the question. Like this is constantly the problem in this country, you know, is that you have people insisting on their wisdom without devoting any imagination at all to what life is like for other people. And this goes as much from Tories going, well, we're not going to give a wage rise to, you know, uh, minimum wage workers because they'll invest it in the Cayman Islands to hippies in Teslas driving into coal mining communities going, oh, my God, let me tell you, like things will be really bad if the environment falls apart. And it's like... Imagine what it is like to live in that town. What are your options? Where does the capital come from? What will the job look like? What will it mean to take a 60% pay cut? Well, I mean, the CFMEU State Secretary in WA, Greg Busson, has made has made that point, right? He said, at this stage, we haven't got a like-for-like replacement for an industry that will replace those jobs with the number of jobs and the terms and conditions they contain. But he said he was happy with how the transition was proceeding um, and that his main concern was that everyone in town got a job and can continue to live the lifestyle with a good paying jobs and good conditions. And that's all people want. People just want to live their life. And I think it's great that in WA that's what's happening. So even though in the East Coast our energy market is totally off the rails, at least in WA where they have state control, it's looking like they'll get a proper transition. That is 
all we really have time for this week. We've had a long episode, lots of in-depth, detailed issues that we have discussed. But, of course, no episode is complete without us acknowledging our fantastic supporters who continue to make sure that this podcast reaches new people every week. We continue to grow. It's it's phenomenal. Like I, I'm just always shocked when I open up the stats and I go, oh, look at that. We've nearly hit 50,000 downloads. The in- stats on how ours is the only independent Australian news podcast in the Apple Top 100 news podcast. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and we are totally independent. Like this show is supported by contributions from the people who listen to it, and it means that we are gloriously free to talk socialism, socialism, socialism. Our microphone is sitting on a box. (laughs) Our microphone is sitting on a box. I'm going to read out the names of our cadre and the people who make this show possible. At Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Tamara James, Bromwin, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I'm Not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I Don't Have Twitter, My Name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Majin, John Sharp and Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. Then there are our Extending the Reach supporters, and they include Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Matsurita at Carydale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, at Kane Knott, at Didhams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graverse, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandina Hannum, Bill Collis, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Wicket, Graham, Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Brian, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Bashit, Katie Wood, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. Thank you. I'm getting faster every week. Thank you. To yes. All of, all of the people who contribute. We also have our Buck a Week supporters who are too numerous to mention and our one-off supporters as well. Not to mention our supporters who just share the show. Absolutely. Like if you share the show on social media, you are doing as much as you can for us and that is awesome. Absolutely. It really is a collective effort and that's what we're about here. We're so collective. At the week on Wednesday. We are a little collective. Of course, if you want to catch Van, you can see Van in uh, Beechworth tomorrow. tomorrow night. Yes, that's I'll be at the Thursday. Winter Words Festival, and on Sunday I'll be at the Willie Lit Festival in Williamstown in Victoria. So Beechworth and uh, Williamstown this week. Look them up. That's right. And of course, you can catch me for the weekend wrap on Sunday afternoon, where I will break down insiders as I always do, and any of the big stories that have come up between now and then. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. It's so good to be home. Bye. Bye.